Alright, like I said, we're continuing through 1 Samuel. And if you're sitting next to somebody and you're looking at each other's Bibles, you might have a little weirdness with 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 1, and that's okay. Um, it's just a normal sum of some translations put 25 verse 1 back in chapter no 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 24 verse 1 they put 24 verse 1 back in chapter 23 and some of them put it in chapter 24 and that is not a big deal that's okay Uh, it's just it's evidence that throughout well a lot of a lot of church history um, starting in about the 60s like 60 AD <laughs> when they realized they better write this stuff down because all the guys that know the stories are dying off so we need to get, get the copies of this uh, they've been translating these things translating scriptures and so some of those verse changes are from where it was translated into Latin or where it was translated uh, quoting the Old Testament Old Testament being translated into Greek and that, that stuff. So it gets kind of exciting just to know people have been working on this for a really long time to try to make it right. So the last thing that happened, remember Saul was chasing David. They were on opposite sides of a mountain and it was slow impending doom and Saul was about ready to catch David and then Saul got word that the Philistines were attacking so he fled and David got loose. Remember also that Throughout the times that David was running, the places he was fleeing to were getting worse and worse. So he was, at one point, he was fleeing and he was in a forest. That would be great. I would love to flee to a forest. But then he had to flee to a wilderness. And then he had to flee to rocks. And now he is in um, sort of a horrible place and sort of a paradise. So this is the Engedi, the Engedi Desert. And so when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. So like, I think it was like two years ago or three years ago, I, get, I was asked to go preach at One Life West. And I preached on this exact same section. And I have a mentor buddy of mine. He's like, whenever you preach on the same thing over again, Don't go look at your old thing. Don't go look at it until you're done with the new one and then go back and look. And I'm so glad that I followed his advice because what I'm talking about today is completely different than what I talked about two years ago down there. I wish I would have talked about... What I'm talking about today, I wish I would have talked about then there, but you can't go back, right? So the Engedi Desert, you guys... This is, um, it is, it is treacherous. It is dangerous. There are moments in history and recorded moments where armies went into the Engedi wilderness and they lost more troops to the terrain and the rocks and the cliffs than they did to ever fighting. Because if, if you look up, um, just Spent, you, could, you could blow four hours today just doing a Google image search of the Engedi Desert because there are cliffs that are hundreds of feet 
straight up cliffs. And then all down that cliff, there are little caves that go in and out. And you look at it and you're like, gosh, that's huge. And then you see a person standing at the entrance of one of the caves and you just have awe of like, wow, that's giant. As you're going out into the Engedi Desert from Jerusalem, you're walking along and you see these cliffs and you have to pick, which one am I gonna go down? And you might pick one and it might lead you miles and miles and miles into a dead end. And the only way out of that is to climb 100 feet up this rock wall or go all the way back miles and miles and then go back down another one miles and miles. The flip side of that is that if you go in the wrong way, you're on flat ground and all of a sudden these canyons start to form as you're traveling. You see these canyons next to you and you don't know if you picked the right canyon ridge because all of a sudden you get to a dead end and it's just canyon, canyon, canyon all around. And the only way to get over to there is to go all the way back like a maze and find some way or to go down that 100 foot rock cliff and then up another 100 foot. I mean, it's treacherous. The only kind of animals that live there, you know, little things, lizards, spiders, birds, and mountain goats. Because mountain goats can climb, they can stand on, you know, a half inch ledge and climb up the side of a mountain. So it is nothingness and it's dangerous. But at the other end of it is a spring and the water that comes from it is just clear and pure as can be and it comes from the top and it comes down this giant waterfall and nowadays you can go there and it's like a resort town and it's beautiful and it's amazing, blah, blah, blah. But you can live there, you could live there I mean, you have fresh water supply, fresh water, not salt water. It's on the sea, so you have all kinds of fish in the sea. You have fresh water to feed all your cattle and to water all your crops. So once you get across all of that treacherous stuff and you get to that spring, you're in paradise and you can live. And that's where King David is. I said King David. That's where David not yet king is. So he hears that. Saul hears this. Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel. Didn't he already have a bunch of guys when he was chasing him and then they went and fought the Philistines? We don't get any description of how that went. If the Philistines were really invading, if it was a battle, how they did. But we know Saul had to get 3,000 people together again. And they go and they chase him. They go seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And this is a place. You know, like in Kentucky, you can go to Possum Trot, Kentucky. This is the wild goats' rocks, Israel. And the other cool thing about, I mean, Possum Trot is called Possum Trot for a reason. Wild goats, Israel is called wild goats' rock because... It's a place where only the wild goats are, right? So they go to the wild goats rocks. He comes to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there's a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. 
So, like I said, there's all these caves all over. Sometimes the shepherds in that area, and, and they still do this to today, they would make a rock wall outside of a cave, and then you get all your sheep to stay in that cave, and they can't get out unless you open up the little rock wall, and then that lets them out, and then they go and pasture and do all that stuff, and they get them back in the cave. So Saul goes in there to relieve himself. And yes, that's what he's doing. There's a, one other place that this, this word is used, and it's when um, the dude went into his chamber to relieve himself, and then the other guy, one of the judges, came in and drove a sword into him and then snuck out through the sewer hole and all that. So that's how we know, yep, that's really what he's doing. Here's what I want you to think about. Saul is going out to fight. And if you've ever helped a kid get ready for Little League, or you've, you've helped some kid dress up for marching band, there's like layers and layers of uniform and dress up, and it's like a costume, right? Well, Saul dressing up for battle, you know, you watch all the Bible movies and they're basically walking around with robes and towels on their heads. That's not how this was. If he goes out to battle, he's got all kinds of stuff on that he's wearing. So if he's gonna go to the bathroom, He's not just going to go to the bathroom. It's, a, it's an effort. And so he's going to go hide in this cave because he's basically taking all of his shields off and all of his armor off, and he's completely defenseless. And just speaking in reality, he wants to keep clean. So he's probably going into this cave and taking everything off of him so that he can use the bathroom. Just because he's got all this stuff on and he doesn't want to get any of it soiled, right? I know. I'm, I'm sharing too much, but I really want you to picture... I really want you to picture naked Saul in a cave with his pile of clothes sitting over here, okay? He goes over here to concentrate. David is in the cave. Of all these caves, hundreds of caves all over, all of these cliffs, all of these rock walls, they're treacherous, they're hard to get to. David's been hiding out here, we don't know how long, maybe weeks, maybe months, he's been hiding out. So David knows, I mean David's smart, right, and he's got 600 men. They probably know one cave from another. They're probably learning strategically how to, how to maneuver around this place and how to get around. If you look at modern pictures of it, you can see where um, monks have carved monasteries into these caves and there's like rock steps going up 100 feet with no rail. And then they go into these different rooms of these caves where these guys go and pray and live their lives. So David knows the terrain. He knows how to get around. They know where the best cave to hide is. And of all the caves, David and his men are hiding in this cave. He came to the sheepfolds where there was a cave. Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand. You shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. This is it. He is dead. This is your chance. David arose stealthily 
and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So I used to read this and think that David was like right up where Saul was while Saul's doing his business and cut something off. And the more I've read about it, yeah, he had all his clothes in a pile over here. Keep them clean. Saul's over here doing his thing. So David sneaks up and he cuts part of his, the corner of his robe. Afterward, David's heart struck him because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he's the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up, left the cave, and went on his way. The way David talks about Saul is with such reverence and respect and holiness that when he snuck up and he cut a, just a little bit, I mean, he's, I, I'm doing this, as if King David running in the wilderness has some good Fisker's sewing scissors to cut. He cuts this thing off and he is cut to the heart. Oh, even this, even this act grieves him like he has sinned. Because here's the king. It's the Lord's anointed. It is the one that the Lord, through Samuel, chose to be king of Israel. And David says, if God made him the king of Israel, and I love God, and I respect and fear God, I am going to submit to God and see that this is the king of Israel. And if this is God's chosen king of Israel, how could I do something so disrespectful as to cut off part of his garment while he's going to the bathroom? Like, that's just dirty. That's just low. But even more so, how could I do something like run up to him and chop his head off with a sword while he's going to the bathroom, while he's defenseless, while he's powerless? So David sees Saul as the anointed king sent from God. And that's almost like God's creation. That's almost like God himself is here. He's got so much power and so much reverence for him. Wow. Well, do you remember the last place that the hem of a garment got taken from somebody? It was Saul grabbing Samuel as Samuel was leaving. And he ripped part of Samuel, prophet of God's, hem of his garment, and said, Samuel said, just like this, the kingdom is being ripped from you, torn away from you. We talked about it a million times. Remember the hem of their garment was a symbol of authority, like an army guy with his stripes, an airman with his stripes on the side. That's being torn off. David has just cut off the authority that Saul has. There's this whole other thing I'm not even going to talk about today, you guys, where under Levitical law, they were required to have tassels on the corners of their clothes, and those tassels were special and represented the law, so you'd always remember the law, kind of like writing something on your hand, so you always remember it, and every time you look at it, you remember that. 
It may have even been that that he cut off to show Saul, you don't remember the law anymore. Like I said, I'm not going to say anything about that. So David does this deed. He's like, oh, gosh, I'm struck. David is so tender, loves the Lord so much that it struck him just to cut off the corner of Saul's robe. That's how much he wants to respect Saul. Also remember, David's best friend is Saul's son, Jonathan. Also remember, David is married to one of Saul's daughters, so this is also his father-in-law. Don't mess with your father-in-law, especially when he's going to the bathroom. He goes and he hides. Saul gets all his gear back on. He's in the dark of the cave. He suits back up. It's not quick. It would have taken a little bit. In this time, David has snuck back to the back of the cave. He's telling guys, do not. The, um, we get it really watered down in all of our translations. It, it's like David was so vehement that they not attack Saul. That It's like he crushed all of his men. It's like he just... Oh, he bruised them. He beat, he beat them with his words. He was so stern. Do not kill Saul. That's how intense he is. When he says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing. And all, oh, yeah. David persuaded his men with these words. It's, it's a much worse word than that. So Saul goes out and David comes out. David, you know. Like I said, he knows the terrain. He knows everything. He lets Saul get down this cliff a little bit. It gets a little bit away. David also rose, went out from the cave, and called after Saul. My lord, the king. (laughs) Okay, so just have a minute here. David and Saul had dinner together all the time. For possibly years, David was Saul's harp player, right? He knew David's voice. He knew exactly, I mean, I can be in a room, I can be at a barbecue with a big old crowd of people, and I hear Caleb say something, and I know it's Caleb. And I don't know where it's coming from. I mean, I can spot, right? My lord, the king, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Whoa. This is how much David respects him. Instead of being macho, right? He calls out to the king and then he completely humbles himself and bows low to the ground. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, David, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. Some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. So that moment right there, he holds that up. Saul for the first time, realizes something's missing. He was that close. We also picture this because the way it's told that it's David standing up there talking to Saul and there isn't anybody there. 
But remember, Saul has an army of 3,000. David has an army of 600. Some of those guys may have come out of the cave with him. And when, when they look down at Saul and they see his army, they know how big it is, right? When they look up at David coming out of a cave and four guys come out and a fifth and a sixth, you have no idea how big his army is. So there's some strategy going on here too. I will not put my hand against you. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and I did not kill you, you may know and see there is no wrong or treason in my hands. Now you know for sure I'm not trying to kill you. Whatever crazy person said I'm trying to kill you, that rip, that cut off section of your garment is a, is a mark to, for you to know that I'm not trying to kill you. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the, This is a scariest statement right here. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. At this moment, David took all of the vengeance that he could rightfully take. All of the, I'm going to... I'm going to just he took all of that and he said I'm going to let the Lord give it to you how scary is that because the Lord knows how to do it and David has power he's strong he can fight well he can throw rocks really well just ask Goliath But to give that vengeance to God is even more powerful. To say, I'm going to take all my anger, all my bitterness, all my vengeance, and I'm going to let the Lord deal it to you. Isn't that wild? He didn't say, I forgive you, it's all good, we can be friends. He said, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Now this is almost a mockery. After whom has the king of Israel come after? Who do you pursue? A dead dog. You're coming after a little old flea. You got these 3,000 army dudes, and look at us. We're like 15 dudes hiding in a cave that you use your bathroom in. Like, that's how puny we are. It's so silly that you would come after me. May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give a sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my case and deliver me from your hand. That is, I mean, it seems like if, if all of David's men thought David's too scared to kill Saul, he could have done it, but he's too scared. Right here at this moment when David says, I give all my vengeance over to God and may he sentence you. He just dealt the death blow to Saul, right? This is like the power move. As soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Saul is now just broken down. Um, 
if you've ever had like a car wreck or you've been through some really intense thing and then it's over and you realize you're alive and you're gonna be okay, sometimes your reaction to that is to just break down and start crying. I think that's what Saul is doing here because he realizes there's like multiple levels of impact of what David just said. You are more, he calls out to David, you are more righteous than I. You have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. You have decided this day how you have dealt with me, and that you didn't kill me when the Lord put me right into your hands. If a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? Ridiculous, right? But you just did it. So may the Lord reward you with good that you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you shall be king. Saul says that to David. Now I know that you will be king, and the kingdom of Israel will be established. Do you remember Samuel said, The Lord has taken the kingdom away and given it to a man more righteous than you? Saul is recognizing David's righteousness. You are more righteous. And then who is pleading for help now? Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Because it was the custom whenever a new king came in, you wipe out the whole family line of the old king. And Saul is saying, please don't do that. Promise me that you won't. This is how much he knows David is going to be king someday. And David swore this to Saul, and then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. It's funny, because Saul has this little moment. I know you're going to be king. You're more righteous than I am. But did Saul escort David back to Jerusalem to be crowned king? Because he doesn't really believe it. He's having this moment of shock and, oh my gosh, I could have just died. And, oh, you, you are this great, righteous, wow, you spared me. All right, let's go back home to the castle. <laughs> and it's like, what in the world? And David didn't fight that. Because the whole essence of what David is doing is letting God fight his fight. So all of a sudden in here, I think there's a thing for us big time as a church. And I think there's a thing in here for us individually as people. So my grandma, I forgot to bring the thing, you guys. Otherwise, you'd be really impressed right now. And I can't even find any kind of prop to fill its place. So my 95-year-old grandma had a stick. And it wasn't even like a broom handle. I think it was a, I think it was a stick that, that went in the closet, you know, that, to hang all your stuff on. And it was cut because it wasn't even as strong as a broom handle. And, but it was big around. It was about that long. And she's just this precious little 95-year-old lady. And I said, Grandma, what is that? She's like, well, that's my stick. In case somebody comes to the door that I need to run off. And Isaac and David, they were old enough, and we were, we were all looking at each other, and we're picturing Grandma Sullivan with this 95, you know, the stick is like a, maybe 10% of her body weight, fighting off 
marauders or whatever it is. And I say, Grandma, don't ever use that against anybody. Because as soon as she picks that thing up, she just handed the people a weapon, right? Thankfully, I, I got it out this morning. And I said, thankfully, she never used this. Cindy, my precious wife, says, sometimes she should have. <laughs> so here we are, right? I mean, and who, you know, various con men would come to her door and steal her purse and all kinds of terrible stuff is off. But people do terrible stuff to us. And we have this image in our mind of, oh man, if somebody did that, I would do this and this and that and this. You know, I've watched enough superhero movies to know Kung Fu. Whatever, right? People hurt us not with weapons and we think, I'm just going to tell them and I'm going to give them a piece of my mind and I'm going to say this. And we're just so eloquent in our attack and the reality is, we're about as tough as my 95-pound grandma with the broomstick. And it really is better if we don't try to come at our attackers with such silly weapons, right? I can't tell you how many guys that I met when I worked at the rescue mission that had gone to prison because they retaliated. Somebody did something to them. And they retaliated, and their retaliation was worse. And so all of a sudden, the court, at a trial that should have been putting the person that attacked them behind bars for 10 years, was now putting the retaliator in prison behind bars for 10 years. And that's an extreme example. But I think sometimes that's how it works with the Lord. Is that... Something happens to us, and we're like, oh, I am going to get them. And here's the Lord, and the Lord's like, I'm going to work in their life, and I'm going to help them out, and I'm going I'm to uh, give them some justice, and I'm going to give them a little discipline. And then all of a sudden, we barge in with our forget-me stick, and we're, and we're swinging, and now all of a sudden, the Lord, who's always on the side of the oppressed, not on the side of the oppressor, all of a sudden, the Lord that was wanting to do this work of discipline and of, of, of work in them is now defending them from you. Because He needs to protect them from your wrath and your bitterness and your hatred. And I'm saying you're because I'm talking to myself. Where the person that did me wrong... If I, could, if I could say, you know what, I would turn them over to God. God, do you see what they did? Do something. Now, all of a sudden, God isn't protecting them from me and all of my gossip, slander, bitterness. God is able to work in them because I'm not attacking them. All of a sudden, that goes on a big scale too, right? For us as a church... There are people that aren't Christians that know the church for what she hates. And they know the church for who she's against. And as soon as they identify with one of those things that the church hates or the church is against, what do they know? They know that you're not welcome. And you better not go talk to those church people. And what happens to our outreach? And what happens to Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the ends of the earth? They don't want to listen to us because all they know about us is what we hate. 
and what we want to get against and have vengeance against. And God's... Whose side is God on, right? Well, if we force God's hand, He's going to be on the side of the people that we're hating because we're having vengeance. And here's King David, so brilliant, showing, I am not trying to kill you. I am turning you over to God. And then think about that fabric that he had, that thing. The authority, it's the authority of Saul as king and he holds it in his hand and he marches out and he's like, this means so little that God turned it over to me and I chopped it off and I'm holding it in my hand. And what am I going to do with this? This means nothing to me, but it's your authority and I took it. So you think, Dan, this is crazy. How could I possibly do this? How can we possibly turn all of our bitterness and our rage and our slander and our hatred and how we've been hurt over to God? And I want to tell you that the power to do that is already in you and it's been in you since Pentecost. Because Jesus hung on the cross with all the power to call a legion of angels to wipe out every single person in Judea that was against him. And instead, he laid low and he submitted himself. And three days later, he walked out with sin and death in his hand. He said, I took it. I took the authority of sin and death on myself and it no longer has any power. Who's the real king? 1 Corinthians 15. Oh man, I can't read it because I'm crying. <laughs> when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That Jesus took it, and he took it the way David didn't fight back against Saul. Jesus didn't fight back against the devil the way the devil wanted him to fight. Even when those guys said, if you are the Son of God, take yourself off the cross. Jesus was like, I am the Son of God, and that's not how this is going down. I'm not doing it your way. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are people that I really hate, that have hurt me. Jesus never intended for me to carry around that hate to get back at them or to frame, ooh, what I'm going to say when I see so, oh, I'm going to, mm. Oh, I know a clever thing. I, I'm probably going to see him at this thing. And here's the clever thing I'm going to say to him. I'm going to put him in his place. Let him know. I've never forgotten how he hurt me that day. No, that's not victory, right? That's not victory at all. Jesus took the authority of death. Cut that sucker off so it had no authority at all and rose from the dead and said, this is the way to live. And everybody knew it. 
Do you remember what happened right after Jesus died on the cross? It says everybody went away sad. All the crowds went away sad, realizing this was the Son of God. And so the freedom that Saul had to go back to his, not his castle, we think of kings and castles, right? So I'll say castle. Saul had freedom to go back so that God could work on him. And God could work on Saul better than David could work on Saul. And whoever you're bitter against and whoever you want to fight against, God can work better on them than you can with your stick or your slander or your gossip or your hatred. And so... This is going to happen a bunch more. We're going to see a whole bunch more of David showing us Easter all over again. Because God's working through him to show what a true king is like in, in versus Saul. And, uh, but as we, as we go, and even as I've been talking today, I hope the Holy Spirit has brought things to mind where instead of trying to figure out how to get them, it's okay to go to God and say, look at what they did. And then let God take care of it. You will be amazed. He is so creative. He loves you so much. He loves them so much that He will work it out in the best way, better than you could ever imagine. All right, let's pray. Lord, You are so good to us. We praise you, Lord, for dying on the cross for our sins. Because we, we deserve what Saul should have got in that cave. Our rebellion against you, our desire for our own ways. And yet, you show us mercy. And you show us grace and compassion and even salvation and hospitality in heaven. We praise you, we thank you, and we exalt you, Lord. Amen.